This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, politics and elections in Central America. Both El Salvador and Costa Rica will hold presidential contests in the coming weeks. We'll have expert analysis. But first, Megan Eckhamill joins us remotely from Northern Virginia with our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. Venezuelans are outraged at the slaying of a former Miss Venezuela and telenovela actress. 29-year-old Monica Spear and her ex-husband were shot and killed during a robbery. Their five-year-old daughter was shot in the leg, but she survived. The robbery took place while the family was inside of their broken-down car on the side of a dark highway. Venezuela takes great pride in their beauty queens. They have celebrity status. President Nicolás Maduro took to his media outlets to quell his people's anger. We must construct a democratic model to fight crime, integrated in the hands of the state on all levels to guarantee the true safety of society. And on the other hand, pacify and change the minds of those who turn to violence. We are going to substitute their immoral thinking for new values, that violence is not the means to quick and easy riches, and that they should respect life. Angry Venezuelans took to the streets and to social media, criticizing the government and lack of security. The U.N. ranks Venezuela as the fifth highest murder rate in the world. Speer was crowned Miss Venezuela in 2004 and went on to compete in the Miss Universe pageant a year later. She was a naturalized U.S. citizen. A series of wildfires are spreading across Chile. Authorities believe the intense heat scorching South America is fueling the flames. Fumes from the fires are polluting the air in Santiago, the country's capital. Authorities believe the air quality is the worst Santiago has dealt with in years. Usually, heavy metal music is associated with screaming, wild guitar solos, and crashing cymbals, but not panpipes or zampoñas. Bolivian musicians have given the musical genre an indigenous twist all their own. The style is a mixture of traditional heavy metal with Andean folk rhythms and instruments. One of the first bands to develop this style is Armadura. They refer to it as heavy metal fusion. This new twist is new enough that only a few bands embrace it, and even those do not commit to it completely. Armadura only plays a handful of songs in this style, and the rest of their repertoire remains traditional heavy metal. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Voters in El Salvador head to the polls early next month to elect a new president. We invited Hector Silva of American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies to give us his analysis of the race. Silva is a prominent Salvadoran journalist and author whose forthcoming book is Infiltrados, Infiltrators, a Chronicle of Corruption in the Salvadoran Civilian Police. Here are excerpts from our discussion. Uh, we have three main contenders, or actually two, but now uh, we have a third one. Uh, traditionally, we've, since the end of the war in El Salvador in 1992, we've had two 
big contenders, the right and the left. Basically, the right represented mainly by the Arena Party, the National Republican Alliance, and the left-wing party is the party that came out uh, from the former guerrillas, the FMLN. Uh, so they have um, run the country in the last 25 years, three period, four periods. The Arena presidents have been in power, and, and the last period, the FMLN candidate became president. Now we have these two forces back, but we have also a third contender, which is um, a, a former president, Tony Saka, uh, who formed a new party called Ghana, uh, who is, this party is basically, it presents itself as moderate re- right-wingers, and the other two candidates, the main ones, are um, vice, uh, current Vice President Salvador Sanchez Seren, who is the last standing commander from the former guerrilla, and now he's the Vice President for President Mauricio Funes. And uh, actually, he's the, the one ahead in the polls right now. And the other one is um, current Major of San Salvador, the capital city, uh, Dr. Norman Quijano, who's running for ARENA. As for now, the picture is like, like this, the FMLN has a slight advantage of, I don't know, depending on the, on the polls, five to six points. And the arena candidate is in, in second place, and in a, in a distant third place is Tony Saka. But one important thing to know is that the, um, uh, the fact that Tony Saka is running now uh, has uh, put uh, in, the, in the table the, the huge possibility that we will have a runoff. By Salvador, now if you don't get 50% plus one of the vote, you will have a, a runoff. And according to the polls, that's what's probably going to happen. So former President Saka is the disruptive force here. And I have to make mention of the name, which is a, is a very interesting play on words in Spanish, Ghana, meaning the, the winning party. Yeah. But, it, but in this case, he may be the disruptive force that forces this runoff. Many experts in Washington are saying if this goes to a runoff, the Ghana voters connect with the Arena voters and Arena wins. That's a reading, and that's a probable reading, but I, I think there's more to it than that. Um, um, a number of analysts now are saying down there two things. First, yes, Saka came in uh, in the middle of last year very strong with something around 15 to 20 percent of their preferences, but he's since now his his numbers have dro- dropped off, so now he's around 10 to 12 percent of the preference, which is you know just enough to 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 provoke a a, sec- a runoff. And one scenario might be that there's just there's no runoff at all, you know, and the numbers are enough for the FMLN to win or Arena. I think this is my take that these elections are less ideological than former elections. I think these elections are going to be more about economic problems, security problems, um, you know, uh, the pockets of of people. And with that, uh, I think there's been an evolution in the Salvadoran voter. So, yes, some of uh, Saka's voters will go to Arena, probably the more hardcore right-wingers. But some of others, especially people that, you know, are part of a low middle class in El Salvador, they either won't go to vote or some of them might vote for the FMLN. And take this into consideration. We haven't experienced really, we, we don't have a lot of experience with second rounds or runoffs. We had one, but it was, you know, it was 
it was a, 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 a second round that was widely won by the, the right wing candidate. But now I think that the Arena Party is in kind of bad shape. They have a lot of internal divisions uh, that were caused in the first place by Saka. And uh, they haven't overcome that. Well, let, let's talk about the leading candidate then, Sanchez Saren. And he is the vice president of an administration that's still more or less popular. Um, the Funes administration has done some progressive things and had made some progress in El Salvador. But I think many people would say when it's done, it didn't meet the promise that people would have thought at the end. Does he have to make something that, that says he's going to do something different than President Funes? I think he does, and I think he's kind of saying that or, or putting that that element into his campaign. To my thinking, he's a weak candidate because he represents and he talks as a candidate to the hardcore FMLN left-wingers. Some would tell you that that, that was necessary because uh, when the FMLN ran with Funes, some of the hardcore, which is a moderate, who's a moderate, some of the hardcore wasn't really uh, satisfied with that, and some of the hardcore voters of the FMLN... And it's never been satisfied, really. No, no. And some of the hardcore voters uh, see Funes as someone that has, you know, sometimes aligned himself to the right. Uh, but then again, this is just one part of the voting population, and you know, the more educated, high-middle-class uh, high uh, people. But... In terms of the wide spectrum of voters, these go this FMLN government actually, uh, as you said, has performed a number of, uh, you know, ha has been engaged in a number of uh, social policies that are, are very, were very welcomed by the, by the Salvadoran people, you know. A lot of cash transfer programs, you know. Uh, that could be related to the U.S. welfare or, you know, that kind of... Uh, set of policies. So that's been very popular. Funes is himself a popular president. He's around 65 to 70% of uh, of preferences, which is really, really healthy. Some would argue that the FMLN went with this pure blood, uh, a former guerrilla commander, the vice president, in order to get the hard boat together again. That was not uh, very satisfied with the party because, well, you know, they ran with a moderate last time, and then in the midterm uh, election of 2010, uh, hardcore candidates lost a lot of FMLN strongholds. So there was a lot of uh, discontent and division. So this candidate was supposed to be winning, but to be uh, there to, to, to put together the hardcore vote. But then again, as you said, it seems by the polling that he doesn't have what it takes to attract new voters to the FMLN, something that Funes did. When the ambassador to El Salvador was here just a few months ago, corruption was a key part of our discussion that even the U.S. Senate is concerned about corruption in El Salvador, and it's been discussed there, and it's held up programs programs between the US and El Salvador and so corruption is a is is a major issue in El Salvador of course and that's what i'm saying i mean the there there's no aside from pointing fingers to the other side there are no if you look at the platforms they have the written platforms they put together for the campaign uh, and which are supposed to be their uh, uh, government programs when they arrive to power, there's not a lot of work 
or proposals or even ideas about how to really fight this. Are you going to strengthen the attorney general's office? Are you going to create new police units? Are you going to strengthen the judiciary? None of that, you know. Uh, as for instance, we're seeing in, in Guatemala, in neighboring Guatemala, we do have a, some say, a shy reform, but still a reform in the judiciary, in the police, uh, presence of an international uh, uh, co uh, commission uh, against impunity. There's no ideas around that kind of that problem in, in, in El Salvador, nor in the current government, nor in former government and past governments, nor in any platform whatsoever. It's talk. It's been talked about the campaign. But again, it's electoral talk. There's no actual proposal of policies around this issue. And it is, in fact, if you ask me, probably one of the two main problems in El Salvador, the other one pretty strongly related, which is uh, insecurity and violence. And you've been on this program before talking about those issues in the past. What else have we t discussed that's important for us to know about this election? Uh, there's no words whatsoever on what the next government is going to do about the truce between the gang gangs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, again, there's been a couple of mentions, but again, it's very superficial. Uh, and either saying, well, I might uh, support it, I will look into it, but there's no real compromise on how they're going to deal with that reality, which is now a reality. You know, we uh, we in El Salvador have, have had a truce. You know, we've ended this year with less homicides uh, than ever uh, in compar comparison with uh, uh, previous years. But the, we also are dealing with uh, more strong gangs, the MS-13 and the Barrio 18. There's a, that's a reality. Uh, and there's no talk about that. When you look into what they're saying, well, they're saying the same kind of things that we've heard in, in past uh, elections or campaigns. I'm going to put more policemen on the ground. We've heard that. Uh, what's the money for that? Where are you going to put them in, in, you know, in the streets? Are you going to form a special, uh, special, specialized unit? Uh, no big detail on that. Uh, nothing on prevention or rehabilitation. Nothing on how they're going to deal with the, the most overcrowded jail system in the Americas, you know, or the second one. Uh, nothing Next about that. Next to Honduras, that. maybe. And Brazil, uh, pro, or I think Brazil has gotten better. But none of that, you know, and nothing at all on drug trafficking realities, uh, which is now a, a very important issue down there, you know, organized crime, nothing on that. So um, I guess my take is that whoever wins will face again the same challenges and will have no new solutions for that or create creative solutions. Thank you so much, Hector Silva. The author of the forthcoming book, Infiltrados, Infiltrators, Chronicle of Corruption in the Salvadoran Civilian Police. Also a fellow at American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies. Our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life. An amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Besides El Salvador, 
February 2nd also brings voters in Costa Rica to the polls to pick a new president. We discussed the Costa Rican campaign this week with Lowell Goodmanson of Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts via long distance. Goodmanson is the author of the book Costa Rica Before Coffee and is an expert on the history, politics, and sociology of Costa Rica. Here are excerpts from our interview. Well, I, I think uh, we're setting an, uh, a record, perhaps, with 13 registered candidates for president, although most analysts believe that only five will uh, have any chance of polling 5 to 10% of the vote. And and it sort of has come down to uh, a, a two-part uh, uh, mystery, uh, one, whether anyone will win the 40% necessary to avoid a runoff. Uh, most people think there probably will be a runoff. Uh, and also whether the leading candidate, Johnny Araya, the National Liberation Party candidate, um, will win, establishing uh, the first time that uh, any particular party has won three presidential elections in a row. Um, so it's basically uh, boiled down to a race with Johnny Araya representing the National Liberation Party, the single dominant party or largest party today, Jose Maria Villalta of the Frente Amplio, a left liberal coalition, which has uh, risen very surprisingly in the polls recently, Otto Guevara, the uh, presidential candidate of the Movimiento Libertario, the conservative libertarian party, Luis Guillermo Solis of the Citizen Action Party, or PAC, a party that's um, disputed the last couple of elections very effectively, but has fallen on hard times now. And Rodolfo Pisa, uh, the candidate of the Social Christian Unity Party, once again, a party able to win the presidency in the 1990s and the beginning of this century, but now uh, reduced to polling 5% or so. The National Liberation Party, more or less the center-left party, the PLN, or the PUSC, the Social Christian Unity Party, uh, which is more or less center-right party for Costa Rica. Those were the two dominant parties that had dominated Costa Rican politics for 50, 60 years. Um, uh, before we have this this breakup of, of, of parties in Costa Rica, I still see these two parties... Um, polling strongly in this election. Many people said the PUSC was going to be out of this particular race because of the various corruption scandals that they've mm -hmm. had in the past. Well, there are a number of things um, going on in Costa Rica. There's been a very, very deep uh, reconfiguration of uh, voting behavior, party politics in the last 15 or 20 years. And certainly for the for nearly a half century following the 1948 uh, revolution, you had this basic alternation of presidential elections. Occasionally one side would win two in a row, but none ever won three in a row. Uh, and it was a contest between the National Liberation Party, on the one hand, uh, per presenting itself as a center-left party, and the PUSC presenting itself as a center-right party. Really what's happened in the last 15 or 20 years is the movement of the PLN toward the center-right. Uh, ironically, any reformist party, certainly the PLN was uh, very historically tied to the coffee cooperative movement, to the uh, 
white-collar public employees union uh, sector. And to the extent it was massively successful, it almost inevitably moved toward the, toward the center-right rather than the center-left. But an even larger um, feature of this has been this collapse of the PUSC, in part traceable to the prosecution of two ex-presidents, uh, Rafael Ángel Calderón and Miguel Ángel Rodríguez, for corruption charges. Um, but in many ways, the PUSC has, uh, has suffered from self-inflicted wounds. Um, most recently, the party uh, appeared to have gotten its act together a bit, uh, nominating Rodolfo Hernández, the head of the National Children's Hospital as its candidate. He subsequently withdrew and then re-entered and withdrew a second time from his candidacy, leaving it to the second-place candidate, Rodolfo Pisa. In some senses, the PLN strategy in embracing neoliberalism so vigorously with the Arias presidency of 2006 has really been to pick off the voting support blocks of PUSC, both among investor classes and among the urban poor that traditionally voted Calderonista. And frankly, they've been very successful in doing that, uh, largely because those who previously voted for the PUSC don't see the party as viable in terms of winning either presidency or large numbers of uh, deputies in the assembly. Araya, who is the former mayor of San Jose, uh, doesn't seem to be affected by Laura Chinchilla, the current president's bad ratings. Uh, I, latest popularity or approval polls have her only at about 10 percent. It, it's sort of a it's sort of a double-edged sword. Um, on the one hand, uh, Johnny Araya has been very successful in avoiding an association with the uh, problems of the current administration. And in a way, it's not too surprising because he ran against Laura Chinchilla in the primaries in 2010 and was a pretty strong critic of the rightward drift of within PLN at the time. So I don't think uh, PLN voters have much uh, confusion about uh, their their closeness in terms of in terms of policy. On the other hand. Johnny Arai has fallen in the polls in terms of this election pretty dramatically in the last three months. I, once again, I do think that the PLN is the only party in the country today capable of turning out 15 or 20 percent of the vote for any candidate, and, and they will in this instance. But he's fallen a bit in the polls, not just because the undecideds are so volatile and so anti-status quo, but also because the Arias wing, the most conservative wing of the National Liberation Party, which backed Laura Chinchilla as the candidate in 2010, continues to control the PLN machinery at most municipal and, and provincial levels, and they're not enamored of Johnny Arias as a candidate. They ran uh, Oscar Arias's brother, Rodrigo, as a pre-candidate in the primary. He lost very badly to Arias, and I, I don't think it's resentments coming out of that, but it's uh, the fact that the the right wing of the party tends to control the machinery, whereas they're sort of stuck with a left-of-center candidate that is seeking to restore the imagery of left-of-center politics. He's been able to recruit ex-president uh, Jose Maria Figueres uh, very recently to campaign for him. Um, but, but there's a lot of division within the PLN. It is rather remarkable how little Araya and the PLN, or 
I guess their candidate has suffered from this extraordinary level of dissatisfaction with the uh, Chinchilla government. Thank you so much, Will Goodmanson of Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts and the author of Costa Rica Before Coffee, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. This past October, at a forum sponsored by the Organization of American States and the Inter-American Dialogue, Secretary of State John Kerry declared that the era of the Monroe Doctrine was over. He called for a new U.S. policy, a Western Hemisphere partnership of equals, sharing responsibilities. For the time being, however, Washington has no regional policy toward Latin America. U.S. relations are atomized, country by country, issue by issue. The U.S. has largely disengaged from OAS operations, and today it plays a less and less influential role in region-wide activities than ever before. Moreover, its relations with most nations have become more and more distant. The U.S. relationship with Brazil, its most important in South America, was badly damaged last year by Edward Snowden's revelations of massive and intrusive U.S. spying in Brazil. This was the second major U.S.-Brazil confrontation in three years. A dispute over Iran was first, and it led President Dilma Rousseff to cancel her state visit to Washington. The spying disclosure also featured in Brazil's choice to buy $5 billion in fighter aircraft from the Swedish manufacturer Saab rather than Boeing. U.S.-Brazilian ties could get worse this year, particularly if the South American giant decides to offer Snowden amnesty. Despite Secretary Kerry's diplomatic efforts, particularly toward Venezuela, last year saw tensions rise between the U.S. and the anti-American ALBA group of nations. Although Bolivian President Morales' plane was grounded in Europe, Washington was widely viewed as the culprit because of the links of the incident to Snowden. And Ecuador was angered by the news that the U.S. had contributed to a Colombian raid on its border. The U.S. increased its aid to Central America to fight crime and drugs. But Washington's approaches to security and drug trafficking have come under increased criticism across the region. Some saw a possible thaw in U.S.-Cuba relations after Obama's handshake with President Raul Castro. But with Alan Gross imprisoned in Havana and four of the Cuban five still in U.S. jails, no shift seems imminent. The resistance of many congressional heavyweights and Cuba's own repressive politics are other critical obstacles to change. Still, some U.S. relationships have been strengthened. Colombians welcomed the Obama administration's continued, albeit declining, security support and its strong endorsement of their peace negotiations. Despite some policy differences, Mexico's wide-ranging reforms last year generated enthusiasm among U.S. officials and business leaders 
and could open a myriad of economic opportunities. Unfortunately, the U.S. has been slower to reform its immigration laws, which is what Mexicans most want from the U.S. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to respond to his Latin American Perspectives commentary or any part of this program, you may contact us. You may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. And for other opinions about a new year for U.S. policy in Latin America, you can check out the American University Center for Latin American and Latino Studies online blog. That's the AULA blog, online at AULA blog, all one word, dot net. That's A-U-L-A blog.net. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us inside the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot O-R-G, slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eck Hamill and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.